Section 9 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, John Hales of Eton, Religion and Dogmatic Orthodoxy, Part 1. John Hales, often dignified as the ever-memorable Mr. John Hales of Eton, deserves the first place in our series of theologians. He was the oldest of the group that surrounded Falkland, and although the quiet tenor of his life brought him into few prominent points of contact with the great events in England through which he passed, his temporary residence in Holland during the very crisis of the struggle betwixt the Calvinists and Arminians, the influence which this struggle evidently had upon his thought, and the interesting account which he has left in his letters of the meetings of the Synod of Dort, all connect him directly with the origin of the rational movement which it is our aim to sketch. Hales's writings, moreover, were amongst the first, as they remain in some respects the best, expression of the principles inspiring and guiding the movement. They present a very complete picture of a singularly fresh, acute, and boldly ingenious and reflective mind, whose influence has been felt far beyond the circle of those more intimately associated with him, or who joined with him in a common object. Of the man himself, unhappily, we have not the same full means of information as we have of the writer. There is no record of his life of any value. We must glean as we best can its particulars and their connected significance from Mizeau's meagre and somewhat confused volume, Wood's Atene Oxonienses, and the Biographical Dictionaries. Footnote. An historical and critical account of the life and writings of the ever-memorable Mr. John Hales, a thin volume published in 1719 as a specimen of an historical and critical English dictionary by P. de Mizeau, author of a similar volume of a more elaborate and valuable character on Chillingworth. The volume contains few facts beyond those given by Wood, but it throws some light upon the accessory features of his later life. There is also a life written in Latin, with care and appreciation, by the well-known Mosheim, prefixed to a Latin translation of Hales's letters, and published in 1724, but it is almost entirely founded on Mizeau's volume. Wood's notice of Hales is interesting, but inaccurate and misleading. End of footnote. So far, indeed, his own letters from the Synod of Dort, which are full of life and meaning, will help us, and we shall weave their personal and descriptive touches with some detail into our sketch. Clarendon's lively but brief portraiture, and Aubrey's gossip, will also furnish some points of interest. John Hales was born at Bath, Aubrey says Wells, in 1584. His father was steward to the family of the Horners in Somersetshire, he was educated in his native city in grammar learning, and at thirteen years of age entered a scholar of Corpus Christi College. Here he took his degree in July 1603, and very soon began to attract attention by the remarkable character of his attainments. The prodigious pregnancy of his parts, says Wood, being discovered by the hedge-beaters of Sir Henry Seville, he was encouraged by them to stand for a fellowship of Merton College. He obtained this fellowship in 1605 in which election he showed himself a person of learning above his age and standing. Through the whole course of his scholarship, Wood adds, quote, there was never any one in the then memory of man that ever went beyond him for subtle disputation in philosophy, for his eloquent declamations and orations, as also for his exact knowledge of the Greek tongue. Quote. His Greek scholarship formed a special bond betwixt him and Seville, who was then engaged in his famous edition of Chrysostom, in which he found the young scholar eminently serviceable. Their friendship was a lasting one, and the friends were afterwards associated at Eton as they had been at Oxford. Shortly after obtaining his fellowship, he appears to have entered into orders, and obtained some fame as a preacher. 
1612 he was appointed Greek professor, and the founder of the Bodleian Library, Sir Thomas Bodley, having died in the following year, Hales was appointed to deliver his funeral oration. The oration is published among his writings under the title of Oratio Funebris Habita in Collegio Mertonensi, a Johanna Halesio, anno 1613, Martii 29, quodie clarissimo equiti di tome Budleo funus du sebatur. Close quote. On the 24th of May of the same year he was admitted a fellow of Eton. This is all that we learn of his life during these years. It is not till November 1618 that we see him in the full daylight of his own letters written from Holland. Thither he accompanied Sir Dudley Carleton, ambassador to The Hague, as his chaplain, and when the synod met at Dort he went there to report the proceedings for the interest and benefit of his right honourable and very good lord. He held no official commission to the synod, and took no part in its doings along with the deputation from the Church of England. He is only as an interested onlooker. But this very fact gives a certain piquancy and liveliness to his letters, and our readers will not regret to have their attention called to them. Moreover, the attitude of the Remonstrants, or Arminians, and the arguments employed by them in their conflict with the majority of the synod, have a significant bearing upon our general subject. He was commended to Mr. Bogermanus, the president of the synod, who gave him facility for making himself acquainted with the business transacted day by day, and reporting it. Footnote. John Bogerman, a zealous opponent of the Remonstrants. End of footnote. His letters open on a scene more edifying than much that otherwise engaged the synod the appointment of a committee to translate the scriptures. This is on Monday, the 16th, 26th, November, 1618. On the following day we have a curious glimpse of the state of practical religion in the provinces in the midst of all the doctrinal disputes which had so long rent them asunder. The synod gave itself to consider the prevailing defect of the afternoon sermons and catechizing, especially in the country villages. This was attributed to three causes, pastoral negligence, pluralities, and the difficulty of reclaiming the country people on the Sundays, either from their sports or from their work. Various stringent remedies were proposed and adopted, among others that the ministers should give good example by bringing their own family to church. The several deputies from England and Switzerland were desired to deliver their custom in this behalf. My Lord Bishop, Carleton Bishop of Landaff, stated that the, quote, magistrate imposed a pecuniary mulct upon such as did absent themselves from divine duties, which pecuniary mulct generally prevailed more with our people than any pious admonitions could. The deputies from Geneva said that every Sunday they had four sermons. Footnote. George Carleton, who does not appear to have been in any way connected with the ambassador, had also been of Merton College, and is said by Wood to have been a severe Calvinist. The other deputies from England were, besides Carleton, Dr. John Davenant, Professor of Divinity at Cambridge, Dr. Samuel Ward, Master of Sydney College, and the well-known Dr. Joseph Hall, mentioned in the text, afterwards Bishop of Norwich. Dr. Hall's health, after a short period requiring his return, he was replaced by Dr. Thomas Goad. End of footnote. He then describes, on the 19th, 29th, a sermon preached by Mr. Dean of Worcester, Hall, afterwards Bishop of Norwich, a polite and pathetical Latin sermon made in the Synod House from Ecclesiastes 7.16. Noli esse justus nimium, neque esto sapiens nimis. Quote, After a witty coining upon his text, how it should come that righteousness and wisdom which are everywhere commended unto us should here seem to receive a check, he showed how men might seem to be too just by too strictly keeping the letter of the law when sitting in places of justice, or by inflicting too heavy punishment. Next, in the second word, sapiens nimis, 
he taxed the divines by presuming too far in prying into the judgments of god and so came to reprove the curious disputes which our age hath made concerning predestination that this dispute for its endlessness was like the mathematical line divisibilis in semper divisibilia that it was in divinity as the rule of cost is in arithmetic it is pleasing to recognize thus early hall's mild and liberal spirit his earnest exhortations to peace and union were taken in good part the praises it is said gave him thanks for his good pains it would have been better no doubt if the synod had taken his words to heart and acted upon them during this time the remonstrance or arminians had not yet arrived and for some days still their coming or at least their appearance at the synod was delayed in the interval the synod busied itself with various practical questions as to the best manner of catechizing and whether there should be one or several modes adapted to different classes of persons the education of the clergy and the celebration of baptism in reference to this last question the chief difficulty was as to the baptism of children born of those who were called ethnic parents it was decided that the children of such parents should by no means be baptized till they came to the years of discretion a strange decision says hales quote, and such as if my memory or reading fail me not no church either ancient or modern ever gave when it was objected what if they were in danger of death their answer was that the want of baptism could not prejudice them with god except we would determine as the papists do that baptism is necessary to salvation which is as much he adds to undervalue the necessity of baptism as the church of rome doth overvalue it it is obvious in this as in other matters that there was considerable difference of opinion and still more of spirit between the representatives of the anglican church and the dominant party in the synod footnote the synod was not a numerous body the dutch and walloon clergy numbered thirty-eight there were five university professors and twenty-one seculars or lay elders the foreign divines numbered twenty-eight and of these the english had the precedence End of footnote. on the great question at issue however with the remonstrance there was at first apparently perfect unanimity of all connected with the church of england hales himself not excepting hall was probably the most liberal-minded and it is impossible to mistake his bias against them when the remonstrants are first introduced and episcopius makes his first appeal in opposition to the competency of the synod before the end however and under the force of certain arguments of episcopius or of others a considerable change passed upon his sentiments it was on the sixth december that the remonstrance headed by episcopius appeared at the synod footnote stilo novo as he says and we shall henceforth adhere to this simpler reckoning End of footnote. Quote, in the midst of the synod house a long table was as if set apart for them for it had been hitherto void no man sitting at it here chairs and forms being set they were willed to sit down Close quote. whereupon episcopius standing up made a short speech in which he prayed god quote, to give a blessing to this meeting and to pour into their minds such conceits as best fitted men come together for such ends then he signified that according to their citation they were now come ad collationem instituendam concerning that cause which hitherto with a good conscience they had maintained on the tenth of december episcopius opened the conflict of his party with the synod and the letters of our author assume a higher interest he characterizes by no means in a complimentary manner the speech made by the leader of the remonstrance on this occasion and the opinions expressed by him episcopius recited he says quote, a scripto a long and tedious speech of two hours at the least consisting of two general heads first of exceptions they had against the synod tanquam in judicem incompetentem secondly of a conceit of their own what manner of a synod they thought fit it should be which was to compose these controversies in hand Close quote 
the remonstrance objected to the synod as entirely composed of the adverse party and it was against all equity and nature that the adverse party should be judge they objected also because this dominant party had schismatically separated themselves from their brethren they desired a synod composed of certain select men who had taken part with neither side a mere chimera saltans in vacuo he continues such a synod as never was nor can be i think it could scarcely be found in the netherlands though the sun itself should seek it failing this they wished that a synod should be formed of an equal number of both parties each with their several preces and assessors who should debate the matter betwixt themselves and if they were unable to agree the civil magistrate as a deus a machina was to be called in and prescribe the moderamen from which there was to be no appeal of the same thread was the whole of their speech says hales contemptuously adding when they had well and thoroughly wearied their auditory they did that which we much desired they made an end obviously our author has no bias towards the armenian side according to his own representation of the purport of their demands his judgment seems severe and one-sided but on the next appearance of episcopius he expresses himself more favorably standing up he says quote, episcopius required that a little time might be granted to them and forthwith uttered an oration acrem sane et animosam about which by reason of some particulars in it there will grow some stir he gives an abstract of the speech which it is impossible to read without being struck by the wisdom ability moderation and courtesy it displays hales himself in some parts might be supposed speaking according to the wisdom of his later writings for example in the following statements quote, they the remonstrants thought it sufficient if the chief points of religion remain unshaken that there had always been sundry opinions even amongst the fathers themselves which yet had not broken out into separation of minds and breach of charity that it was impossible for all wits to jump in one point it was the judgment of Piraeus, a great divine that the greatest cause of contention in the church was this that the schoolmen's conclusions and cathedral decisions had been received as oracles and articles of faith that they were therefore unjustly charged with the bringing in of a sceptic theology they sought for nothing else but for that liberty which is the mean betwixt servitude and license episcopius then described the points against which he and his friends had set themselves quote, first against those conclusions concerning predestination which the authors themselves have called horrida decreta secondly against those who for the five articles so called have made a separation thirdly against those who cast from them all those who in some things dissent from them and lastly against those who taught the magistrate should with a hoodwinked obedience accept what the divines taught without further inquiry he maintained that the smaller part does not necessarily make the schism nor the major part the right although they had been overborne they were not defeated quote, the scriptures and solid reason shall be to us instead of multitudes the conscience rests not itself upon the number of suffrages but upon the strength of reason tamparati sumus vinci quam vincere he gets a greater victory that being conquered gains the truth amicus socrates amicus plato amicus synodos sed magis amica veritas such are fragments of this remarkable oration of episcopius delivered with great grace of speech and oratorical gesture it is not wonderful that it impressed hales and that he should have been at pains to report it it remains to this day a splendid specimen of eloquent moderate and christian argument the lay members particularly were much affected by the candid enthusiasm of the speaker and had they not been powerless in the hands of the political party that was really guiding the movement good might have come from it as it was no result worthy of such an effort followed the president with characteristic rudeness 
rebuked Episcopius for having spoken at such length without special leave, and then demanded a copy of the speech, in reference to which he subsequently sought to fix a charge of falsehood upon the speaker. Our author gives us a vivid glimpse of all these personal details, and also of various altercations between the Synod and the Remonstrance as to the order of proceeding, and the delivery of what are called the considerations of the latter, by which are meant certain proposals of change, particularly in regard to the confession and catechism, which on former occasions had been urged by the Remonstrance. Various incidents of interest follow. The reception of the Scottish commissioner, Walter Balcanqual, who reports that the king at his coming away did charge him verbis sublimibus to exhort them unto peace is described in a separate letter on the twentieth december the scotch nation according to their commissioner quote, had evermore so linked itself to this people the dutch that it hath always laboured to endeavour the peace of this state and now it was ready to do as much for the peace of the churches amongst them they had very straitly bound unto them the scottish church de meruistis ecclesiam scoticanum by so kindly welcoming him close quote. The lighter, humorous aspects of the synod are not forgotten. Quote, Old Goclenius, one of the foreign divines, could not let the remonstrance pass without a jest, such a one as it was. For being asked for judgment, he put off his hat, and told us that the remonstrance were canonici irregulares, regular irregulars, and put on his hat again. Where the sap of the jest is, I know not, but the gravest in the synod had much ado to compose their countenances. Close quote. These glimpses, like all real insight into ecclesiastical assemblies, excite our astonishment at the importance which subsequent generations have attached to them and their decisions. All such conventions are found more or less to present aspects ridiculous from their absurdity, or shocking from their violence and unfairness, when the veil is once lifted, and we see them for a moment as they appeared to an onlooker. If old Goclanius play the fool, the Preces Politicus, Mr. Bogermanus, plays the tyrant. Upon a decree of the state's being read to the remonstrance, Episcopius required a copy of it. The Preces asked him why. Ut pariamus, said Episcopius. No, said the same Preces, it is only that you may find some words to cavil at, and therefore they should have none. It was sufficient that they knew the meaning of it. This, at first, Hales adds, quote, seemed to me somewhat hard, but when I considered that these were the men which heretofore had, in prejudice of the church, so extremely flattered the civil magistrate, I could not but think this usage a fit reward for such service. Our author is far from himself here. He forgets his charity as well as lays aside his judgment. In appealing to the civil magistrate, the remonstrance may have been mistaken, but they only consistently maintain an opinion which they were entitled to hold as a party, which many good men have held in every age, and which both parties, Calvinists and remonstrants alike, held when it suited them. But supposing that they had thereby judged wrongly, this would be no justification of a clear wrong done them by the Preces Politicus of the Synod in refusing them a copy of a decree directed against them. The truth appears to be that Hales was somewhat wearied with the importunity and calm resistance of the remonstrance. The slowness and delays of the business troubled him, for he speaks of the session at which these things took place, Friday the 21st, as a long, a troublesome, and a fruitless session. He is puzzled also about his movements. The synod is adjourned to Thursday of the following week, and his honor the ambassador had evidently wished him in the interval to return to the Hague, but he excuses himself as a poor traveller. I am but a silly traveller, and conveniently I cannot travel without a guide. The days being short, and the tide coming somewhat late, night would quickly come. Now, for me to go by night, having neither language nor any to conduct me, must needs be very inconvenient. During the next three weeks or so, that is, from the 27th of December to 15th of January, 16, 18, 19, the business of the Synod came to a great crisis, 
as it is described by our author. He sets forth the main details in a very graphic way, still showing, upon the whole, strong sympathy with the dominant side. So far, evidently, the foreign deputies tried to mediate between the parties, but without success. The remonstrants continued firm in their attitude of resistance. The points in dispute were, first, as to the order to be held in discussing the articles, whether the question of reprobation were to be handled after the five articles, or whether it should be handled in the first place, as the remonstrance desired. They pretended, says Hales, their doubts lay especially there, and that being cleared, they thought they could show good conformity in all the rest. The second difficulty was the objection of the remonstrance to be assailed with interrogations which they very much disdained as pedagogical. The third was as to their liberty of disputation, whether it was to be limited by the discretion of the synod, or large and unlimited, according as it pleased them. The first of these points particularly excited a very vehement discussion, in which Episcopius, as usual, on the side of the remonstrance, and D. Gomarus, on the side of the synod, are the prominent figures. Footnote. Francis Gomar was the great opponent of Arminius at Leiden, where they were colleagues as professors of divinity in the first decade of the seventeenth century. In the year 1618, at the close of which the Synod of Dort opened, he was settled as professor of Hebrew and divinity at Groningen, where he died in 1641. He was partially educated in England, and was a Calvinist of the extreme school. End of footnote. The point of reprobation is that, said Episcopius, quote, quod maxime nos egre habet, he could not endure that doctrine concerning the absolute decree of God, that God should peremptorily decree to cast the greatest part of mankind away only because he would. Corvinus answered that he could not salva conscientia versari in ministerio, till that point was cleared. Isaacus Frederici, that principium momentum, was in that question. Others, that on the question of election they had no scruple, all their doubt was on the point of reprobation, and, therefore, their conscience would not suffer them to proceed further in disputation till that matter were discussed. On the other hand, Gomar, quote, that saw that his iron was in the fire, for I persuade myself that the remonstrance spleen is chiefly against him, began to tell us that Episcopius had falsified the tenet of reprobation, that no man taught that God absolutely decreed to cast man away without sin, but as he did decree the end, so he did decree the means, that so as he predestinated man to death, so he predestinated him to sin, the only way to death, and so he mended the question, adds our author, whose sympathies cannot stand such a strain as this, as tinkers mend kettles, and made it worse than it was before. Reiterated discussion was of no use. The remonstrants were called in, and the president, after a short admonition, requested to know whether they would proceed according to the order desired by the synod, but as invariably they declined to do so. Evidently they saw that their cause was prejudged. In truth, they had been summoned, not as Episcopius signified on his first appearance, ad collationem instituendam, not to conference, but merely to give in an account of their opinions, and leave them to the judgment of the synod. This was urged quite fairly against them, according to the terms of their summons. Footnote. With the exception of Episcopius, who had been originally summoned in the same terms as the other professors of divinity to take his seat in the synod. End of footnote. They could not claim to be exempted from these terms, and yet they would not yield without a free discussion in all things, and especially on the point of reprobation, which they knew was the weak point in the contra-remonstrance doctrine. They had no alternative but ignominiously to submit to condemnation, or to take up an attitude which they should have taken up primarily, and refused to appear under such a summons at all. Virtually they declined the judgment of the synod as pars adversa. When driven to it, Episcopius said, We are resolved, agere pro judicio nostro, non pro judicio synodi, words which one of the seculars or political members of the synod willed should be noted. 
At length, on the 14th of January, they were dismissed with bitter reproaches by the Preces. Quote, I will dismiss you, he said, with no other elegy that one of the foreigners gave you. Quoquepistis pede eodem sedite. With a lie you made your entrance into the synod, with a lie you take your leave of it, in denying lately that ever you protested yourselves provided to give answer on the articles, or to have had any such writing ready which all the synod knows to be false. Your actions all have been full of fraud, equivocations, and deceit. That, therefore, the synod may at length piously and peaceably proceed to the perfecting of that business for which it has come together, you are dismissed. But assure you, the synod will make known your pertinacy to all the Christian world, and know that the Belgic churches want not arma spiritualia, with which in time convenient they will proceed against you. Quam obrem vos delegatorum et synode nomine dimito exite. So, with much muttering, the remonstrance went out, and, Episcopius going away, said, Dominus Deus judicabit de fraudibus et mendaciis, sapma, exeo ex ecclesia malignantium. And so the synod break up. Thus were the remonstrance thrust from the synod of Dort. The issue was probably inevitable. The synod was entitled to vindicate its jurisdiction and the terms on which it had been convened, which the Arminians had so far accepted by obeying the summons. Yet the result was unhappy, and the mode of their dismissal in the highest degree undignified and unbecoming. It was very soon felt that a great mistake had been committed. Hales gives expression to this feeling. The most partial spectator of our synodal acts, he says, cannot but confess that in the late dismission of the remonstrance with so much choler and heat there was a great oversight committed. There appears to have been some idea of trying to repair the mistake, but this was found to be impossible. As our author remarks, such mistakes of public action are, with less inconvenience, tolerated than amended. The Synod could not retrace its steps without loss of dignity, and so another example was presented of the folly of ecclesiastical assemblies convened under the impulse of sectarian zeal rather than of enlarged Christian enlightenment, and an honest wish to deal fairly and charitably with questions which must always divide men so long as they are serious subjects of thought. After the dismissal of the remonstrance from the Synod of Dort, the interest of Hales's letters very much diminishes, although they continue for about a month longer. Then, on the ninth of February, 1619, they suddenly terminate. After about three months' attendance, he was evidently well wearied of the business. Several causes contributed to this. His own interest in the dogmatic distinctions under discussion, never very keen, grew languid with the apparently interminable altercations and delays. He was no zealot, and while approving, upon the whole, of the position of the dominant party, he was clear-sighted enough to see the unfair violence with which men like Gomar maintained their opinions and assailed those of others. Martinius of Breme, having, after the departure of the remonstrance, ventured to state some scruples, quote, about the manner of Christ's being fundamentum electionis, Gomar started up and exclaimed, Ego hanc rem in me recipio, and therewith cast his glove, and challenged Martinius with the proverb, Exe rodum, exe saltum, and required the synod to grant them a duel. Close quote. The synod was glad by fair words to pacify the combatants, and according to custom the session was concluded with prayer. But, slyly adds our author, quote, Zeal and devotions had not so well allayed Gomarus his collar, but immediately after prayers he renewed his challenge and required combat with Martinius again, but they parted for that night without blows. Close quote. Hales plainly felt himself less and less at home amidst such scenes of polemic violence. Another feature of the proceedings shocked his sense of justice, while it necessarily abated his interest. The main business of the synod was transacted, not in public, but in private. 
the real conclusions were prearranged at private sessions and the evening sessions which appear henceforth to have been the only public ones he says are only to entertain the auditory not to determine anything at all footnote in the same letter he says quote, all this business of citing referring examining must needs seem only as acted on a stage if the synod intempestively beforehand be a resolution end of footnote it had been at first debated in the synod whether they should admit of hearers or do all in private old sibrandus an old and irascible opponent of episcopius at franeker was very hot against the auditory and thought it not fit that any care should be had of them as being only mulierculae et pauculi juvenes in cauti a complaint in which our author admits there was some reason Quote, for many youths, yea, and artificers, and I know not what rabble besides, thrust in and hurtle the place, and as for women, he somewhat ungallantly adds, whole troops of them have been seen there, and the best places for spectators reserved for them, while they must needs expose the synod to the scorn of those who lie in wait to take exception against it. The decision, however, was in favor of the public, as it generally is in such cases. Hales's language, in speaking of the auditory, almost implies some feeling of personal affront, for we must remember that he was not, like his brother divines from England, a member of the synod. He was merely there himself as an auditor and reporter, seated, probably, among the youths, artificers, and I know not what rabble besides, without even the means of light to carry on his reporting, as he says in a letter a few days later. I would willingly, he writes, on the 29th of January, have given your honor an account of his speech, a speech by Altingius, one of the Palatine professors, whose discourse appeared to him the most sufficient of any he had yet heard. But it was in the evening, and the auditory are allowed no candles, so that I could not use my tables. We do not wonder, therefore, that a few days further we find him intimating that if he had his lodging discharged, he would willingly leave. He inquires, like a prudent man, whether his honor was to answer the charge of his lodging or the public purse. I would willingly be resolved of it, he continues, quote, because I have a desire to return to the Hague, first, because the synod proceeding as it doth, I do not see that it is opere pratium for me here to abide, and then because I have sundry private occasions that call upon me to return. So, after a single letter more, which contains no further hint of his movements, he returned, and we hear no more of him in connection with the synod of Dort. His presence there, however, was not without a lasting influence on his opinions. His letters help us but slightly to trace the progress of this influence, but his subsequent writings make it plainly manifest. There is a story told by his intimate friend, Farandon, according to which he himself attributed a distinct change in his theological sentiments to a speech of Episcopius in handling St. John 3.16. There he did bid John Calvin good night, as he often told. There is some confusion, but probably also some truth in this story. The only reference we find in his letters to John 3.16 is not in regard to Episcopius, but Martinius of Breme, to whom allusion has been already made, and who founded much on this famous text. Martinius was evidently an able man, of liberal and at the same time evangelical sentiments, and it is possible that his arguments drawn from this passage of the Gospels may have moved our author. There is, on the other hand, no evidence from his own correspondence that his opinions were at the time much affected by anything Episcopius said. Of the gradual change in his sentiments there can be no doubt, and there were probably many concurring causes for it. Of a calm, reflective, and patient temper, gifted with a shrewd, quiet insight, and a great natural love of fairness, he could not be an auditor for three months of an assembly like that of Dort, without feeling that the truth did not all lie on one side. The spectacle presented to him, of extreme orthodoxy with unchristian choler, of contentious zeal aiming at triumph rather than of earnest thoughtfulness anxious for light, 
could not but start new trains of inquiry in a mind so open and candid as his. It naturally forced upon him the general question of the value of theological dogmatism, and the grounds on which men seek to control each other's opinions and beliefs. All his writings prove that this was the form in which a theological change matured in his mind. His was no passage from one extreme of opinion to another. If he bade John Calvin good night, he did not say good morning to Arminius. He did not pass from one side to another. His mind was of far too high an order, his gift of spiritual insight far too delicate and subtle, to admit of his doing this. When he left the narrowness of Calvinism, he did so not because he became possessed by some other narrowness, but because he saw from a higher field of vision how little dogmatic precision has to do with spiritual truth, and how hopeless it is to tie and confine this truth under definite creeds and systems. We shall find abundant evidence of this immediately. Hales returns to England in the beginning of 1619, February, and appears to have settled at Eton in the quiet enjoyment of his fellowship. He passed his time probably betwixt Eton and London, patiently working out the deeper thoughts about religion which had been quickened in him by his experience in Holland, and occasionally joining in the more stirring social life of the metropolis. It was in the years following that Ben Jonson gathered around him the brilliant set of intellectualists and young poets known as the Apollo, whom we have already described. He was appointed Poet Laureate in the very year of Hales's return, and, we are told, was frequently received at Windsor, where he was on familiar terms with the royal family. It may have been during one of these visits that he and our author became acquainted, for it is also said of the latter that, quote, when the king and court resided at Windsor, he was much frequented by noblemen and courtiers, who delighted much in his company, not for his severe and retired walks of learning, but for his polite discourses, stories, and poetry. Close quote. This is not inconsistent with Clarendon's description of his living a life of studious seclusion amongst his books, but, very well pleased with the resort of his friends to him, who were such as he had chosen, and in whose company he delighted, and only making at rare intervals, once in a year, a journey to London to enjoy the conversation of his friends there. Falkland, it is to be remembered, had not yet, nor for nearly ten years after Hales's retirement to Eton, joined the Johnson set of wits, nor Suckling either, and it is in connection with them especially that we hear of him in this society. From the time that Falkland appears in London, or during the significant decade that preceded the meeting of the Long Parliament, we can hardly suppose Hales's life at Eton to have been so extremely secluded as Clarendon's words suggest. His mind, for one thing, was by this time actively at work regarding the alarming state of the church and public affairs in general. He was maintaining an active intercourse or correspondence with Chillingworth as to the composition of his great work. We are told, moreover, that his company was much desired by the wits and poets in town, amongst whom Falkland and Suckling, with Ben Jonson himself, are particularly mentioned, and that he used often to meet with them and held very well his part in those ingenious conversations. Suckling's allusion to him in the Session of Poets, and some interesting lines which he has directly addressed to him, imply the same thing. Hales was evidently at this time no stranger in the poetic fraternity, although coy of his visits. He loved his quiet ease at Eton and his books. He required to be tempted to town, but the attractions there were evidently sufficient to draw him not infrequently from his retreat. Suckling writes as a pleasant genial friend, who often met him and enjoyed his company. The lines give a very pleasing picture of our author's mingled sweetness and gravity, his retired studiousness and fondness for subtle argument, and yet his appreciation of wit and wine, and the claims of good fellowship. Whatever may be his theological preoccupations, quote, whether these lines do find you out, putting or clearing of a doubt, whether predestination or reconciling three in one, or the unriddling how men die and live at once eternally. Close quote. 
he is exhorted to leave Socinus and the schoolmen, and, bestriding the college steed, to come to town. Quote, "'Tis fit you show yourself abroad that men may know, what e'er some learned men have guessed, that oracles are not yet ceased. There you shall find the wit and wine flowing alike, and both divine. Dishes with names not known in books, and less amongst the college cooks, with sauce so pregnant that you need not stay till hunger bids you feed. The sweat of learned Johnson's brain, and gentle Shakespeare's easier strain, a hackney coach conveys you to, in spite of all that rain can do. And for your eighteen pence you sit the lord and judge of all fresh wit. News in one day, as much we've here as serves all Windsor for a year, and which the carrier brings to you, after it has here been found not true. Then think what companies designed to meet you here, men so refined, their very common talk at board makes wise or mad a young court lord, and makes him capable to be umpire in his father's company, where no disputes nor forced defence of a man's person for his sense take up the time, all strive to be masters of truth as victory, and where you come, I'd boldly swear, a synod might as easily err. Close quote. Agreeable, however, as Hales's occasional visits to London and its refined and sparkling society may have been, his life at Eton was, after all, his main business. It would have been interesting to lift the veil upon him amongst his books, as he pursued his studies in the seclusion of the college, or meditated amidst the rich and peaceful glades around. But we have no adequate means of doing this. That old scholastic life has not been preserved in any clear traces that can be set before our readers. Yet we can tell something of Hales's companionship also at Eton, and see that it must have been not only pleasant, but in a high degree congenial and stimulating. End of chapter 4, part 1